Hey everyone, this is Matt Downing with Rethinking EDU. And I'm really excited to be with our guest tonight on the Knowledge Drop episode. So as you know, we are currently in a series on networks, but these Knowledge Drops allow the co-host to have conversations that might not fit neatly into our current series, but we feel the topics are relevant and important to the current educational conversation. So tonight I'm thrilled to be with Raj Lewis and have him drop some knowledge on us. I'm thrilled for a number of reasons. Raj is a good friend and I welcome any chance to have these sorts of conversations. Raj is thoughtful, he's challenging, he's a visionary, but he's also practical. Another asset Raj brings is he's not in the educational field and it is so helpful to get an outsider's perspective within a system that is in desperate need of drastic transformation. So Raj is the program director for a men's residential program in the greater Philadelphia area that helps serve men who are often directly out of prison. They struggle with homelessness and or addiction. He's a husband and father of two with a baby on the way, July 4th, very patriotic. Just went under contract on a new house and is a certified kettlebell instructor. Welcome, Raj. How are you? Did, did I miss anything there? No, I think you covered it. Um, and I think that I've never had anybody introduce those things at the same time. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Whenever I hear those things, I feel like you, they must be talking about somebody else. I guess I am those things and I'm really proud of those things. So, and thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Great. So for our guests and for those that are listening, um, can you just give us a little bit more insight beyond my, you know, one paragraph introduction. Tell me a little bit more about the work uh, that you do. Sure. So I've been doing um, work that I'm currently doing in some version, some incarnation for the past 10 years. Um, I primarily work with men in the inner city that struggle with homelessness and addiction. Um, I've worked with that population in a number of different capacities. Um, I would say that the common thread is Helping men essentially get to the other side of addiction, incarceration, um, patterns of unemployment and homelessness. I've done that through homeless shelters. I've done that through addiction treatment facilities. I've done that working with workforce development and job readiness programs. And of course, in all of those, in all the agencies that I've, I've worked for, education is a major piece. Because the population that I work with, most of them are, you know, have dropped out of never finished high school or you know some have dropped out of uh, middle school and have never gone back to school and have mostly worked under the table and you know education is kind of a function um in many ways it's intimidating it can be very scary it can be filled with a lot of memories of maybe negative authority authority figure experiences they might have had or they didn't get the mentor mentoring the support that they needed so, you know, we, we work with guys that are 40, 50 years old that might have a fifth grade reading level, a fourth grade math level. So about how many uh, years have you been in, in the current place where, where you're working? So I've been in my current position as the director of, of four residential communities. I've been um, in that position for three and a half years now. Oh, great. So what that looks like is that we um, serve an emergency shelter population um, for people that just need emergency shelter. Um, we have a long-term homeless shelter for guys that it's like a working man's program, guys that are have work and have stability, but they just need the housing piece. And then we have a recovery program for guys that are really looking for help with, you know, um, struggles with substance use, but also homelessness. It's those guys that we work really hands-on with, with the employment piece and education piece. 
And then we have a transitional housing community for guys that need, you know, um, some stable, affordable housing right after they finish our program. So that would actually be four uh, different programs then, right? That's exactly right. And they sort of, uh, they're sort of all semi-connected, right? But but not totally in, in all the pieces. Well, the three first communities I talked about are, are in the same facility, but our transitional housing community is separate. It's a separate campus. Cool. Yeah, so, so transitioning a bit... Um, you know, focusing, you know, a little bit more closely on education and, and really what we want to learn from your work and your experience, because uh, there's obviously a lot that educators can learn, um, you know, from what you've experienced. So the first thing I really want to talk about tonight is is ways in which you've seen education system really just fail the men you serve and and how you've seen education be part of the solution. So we have these two sides, right? We have the negative and the positive and, uh, you know, not to be too pessimistic, but uh, uh, let's just start with the negative. Um, so how, how have you seen, how have you personally seen the education system fail uh, the men that you work with? Um, you know, you could speak in general terms or if you have any specific examples, I think that would be really helpful. That's a really great question. You know, you had mentioned that, you know, you know, my family and I are, are recently, you know, purchased a home. Well, I can tell you the biggest reason why we did that, and that's school district. And so we talk about a population of men and essentially living in a context of urban poverty, underserved community. First thing I automatically think about is that they're in a pretty terrible school district. And so what does that mean, typically? It means that the public school system just doesn't have the resources. And if that's in a context where there's a lot of gang violence, a lot of drug use, where the dropout rate's really high, there can be, the, that's the first point, right? I want to be careful how I use my words because it doesn't mean that I don't have respect for a lot of the teachers that work in the school district. No disrespect to those people. You know, if you look at the numbers and you look at where, where I live, you know, how the school is doing, we're at the bottom. We're at the, we're at the very bottom. And so most of the guys I work with grow up in a very challenged, underserved school district. They're just not going to get the support that they need. Now, if you think about even a kid in a good school district who has challenges at home, you know, their parents, you know, the, where I live, it's mostly a single family home. And you just say they're not going to get the support that they need. So what ends up happening are two things that I've seen. Kids in that particular situation either, either just get pushed through, you know, because we'll have high school graduates in our program or guys that have their GED, and we'll look at their reading, you know, reading comprehension and math scores and like, how in the world do they ever graduate from high school? Well, chances are they were probably just pushed through, right? Aging out, you know, they aged out. So they aged out, even though they weren't keep making the scores indicative of, you know, a grade change or a graduation. In some sense, our current school system creates winners and losers. And that's, that feels like that's anywhere, right? Particularly in a context of urban poverty and a really challenged, underserved school district, there's all these other social factors going on, violence, drug use, yep. teenage pregnancy, all those types of things. You know? And of course, you, know, you have to mention a lot of incarceration, like a really high incarceration rate of young, young African-American men in those areas. And that's generational, right? That has such a generational impact. Think about a lot of those social challenges. The school system is just trying to help these kids as much as possible, but in terms of failure, you know, those are the biggest failures that I see is that public schools don't, in underserved school districts or in poor school districts, don't have the resources to address 
not only um, quality education, but also these other social forces that are going on in lives. It's really difficult. Not to say that there aren't people that are making valiant efforts. There are people that are making valiant efforts. You know, a lot of times in partnership with nonprofits, like the nonprofit I work for, or other organizations that could come alongside the school district and offer, you know, supportive services. And since I got my work started in the city where I work and live, and in an after-school program, and that was through a church. And the church understood, like, hey, listen, a lot of times these kids go home to, you know, a parentless home or a home where there isn't a lot of supervision. And that's a crucial time where kids typically get into a lot of trouble, either managing boredom, whatever it might be. And a lot of a lot of families can't afford, you know, daycare, whatever it is. So things like that, you know, um, seem be re- can be really effective. Can you talk a little bit more about the system um, creating winners and losers? Uh, you 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 did expound on that, but I, I would like to to hear a little bit more from you. I think that you know I reflect on my own school experience, and I was just talking to my wife about this that I remember very early on. No matter what social things were going on in my life, you know, whether it was you know was in my home or wrestling with my self esteem or wrestling wrestling with a relationship with a girl. Or trying to fit in, or these, these common things that young kids struggle with. No matter how successful I was at navigating those forces, there was this real feeling that my life was defined by these letter grades that I got. Think about, I mean, I think that all kids have their own struggles, regardless of where they live socioeconomically. But when you think about the unique struggles hmm. of a young person in a context of urban poverty, an underserved community, you just have to think about all the social forces they face that are working against them to be successful in life. Whether it's growing up in a single family home, whether it's growing up in a violent neighborhood where gunshots are the norm, or where selling of drugs is the norm on their block. Um, not to mention, you know, that their, their food is maybe like a honey bun and juice, you know, or if they, if they get breakfast at all or whatever might be going on. You know, th- these are just the, the realities of living in an underserved community. Um, you're really just in survival mode. And so you have kids that are unbelievably resilient, unbelievably able to survive a very harsh urban sort of jungle. And then for that person, you know, to my experience, to be defined by a letter grade through how they're doing with like, say, math or reading comprehension. You know, psychologically, what is the impact on that child? This child is facing all these forces that they're they're having to learn how to be resilient, how to survive. Maybe they're looking out for looking out for their younger siblings, so they're not they're not even thinking about their own success and survival, but they're thinking about their extended family's survival. Maybe a younger brother, younger sister. And then when you think about okay, how a letter grade or how that person's doing in math doesn't come close to capturing how they're really doing in life. That sort of system have the power to make them feel like they're not doing well if they get a D in math or whatever it is. So I think that that feels like an inherent flaw in the system. But for them to be defined by a letter grade, it doesn't completely capture the reality of how they're actually doing in life. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, those are some great points you bring up and and, and also highlighting um, you know, the, the situation that, that the students are in and the complexity of that and how that plays a, a huge role. So I'm going to stay negative here for a bit longer. I, 
you know, we're going to look at the hope. We're going to look at the uh, the solutions in, in a moment. But so we've talked about the K through 12 experience, but but you had a lot of experience, um, you know, in these programs like the one you're working in in today. And and how have you seen, um, you know, programs like maybe even your own, but others continue that failure to to meet these these men in in effective and engaging ways? That is a really excellent question. And what I would say is that our agencies like mine have historically gotten it wrong. And I'm proud to say that we're in a season of changing this and relooking at this. Right. So we end up almost re-traumatizing the men. Their experience Mm. is a traumatic experience of not only living in a context of urban poverty where they have a lot of social forces they have to navigate just to survive. All those social forces are not setting them up for success in a school system where there's even more pressures. And then Mm -hmm. let's say, for instance, you know, a scenario where a guy drops out of high school because he feels like there's a job opportunity that he can get, most likely with a friend under the table. And this this kid is really trying to make it, trying to make it outside of the school system because the school system is not acknowledging, A, all of his life really going on and b it's sort of reducing him to a letter grade or whatever the rubric is of, or whether whatever the criteria is of success that's not working for him in the school system historically agencies like mine have basically just dropped that same 30 or 40 year old man in the same sort of system he can feel again that, that he's being reduced to how he does in reading comprehension or he's being reduced for how he's doing in math Again, of course, we, you know, it's remedial, right? We're trying to offer him remedial education. And we believe that offering that individual remedial education will then help them get a better job or help them, you know, write a better resume. And all those things are true. I think that because what I've seen in working with my population, because it mimics and reflects a very negative experience that they've had in school, it's difficult for the men I work with to psychologically get there where they can understand what the point is. Yeah. Because the entire time they're just feeling defeated. They're feeling like, you know, I've seen time and time again, guys, you know, we get the guys in my program go through a remedial education and they just, they're, you know, the whole countenance just becomes sort of dropped and depressed and sad because they're like, I did all this before and I didn't do well the first time. Why 30 years later am I doing this again just to experience the same sort of failure of a system. So I think that what we're now doing, you know, to sort of flip over to the positive, what we're doing now is recognizing that we've been doing it backwards. Just like I said, how school systems often don't acknowledge the person's life. Now we are doing that in my agency. Like, well, let's sit down and actually talk about your work experience. Let's see what you've done. See what skills and vocational training you've actually gotten outside of these regular systems, whether it was um, the workforce system or the school system. And then and, and empowering the man to believe that he actually can create, those things do represent value. Whatever he's done, however he has um, survived, whatever work that he's done, whatever experiences that he's othered, that we can, we can express that into a value system that both makes him feel validated and heard and seen, but that also can translate into some sort of resume to help him get a job and for him to, and to be able to be placed you know, with an employer that matches his skill set. Now, of course, that does, you know, um, I mean, the hole in that system is that we do, you know, we do have to um, work with employers that are compassionate with our population. Mm. You know, we're asking the employer to be sensitive, right? We're asking the employer to consider yeah. this group of population of people 
that it's not just a matter of them being irresponsible or them being drug addicts or them being criminals. So we are we are implicitly asking the employer and explicitly asking the employer to consider the plight of this population in terms of taking a chance on them. Yeah, yeah, Raj, we're actually in the midst of of a series on networks, and and we're talking a lot about you know in education the importance of networks to push forward change. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, how's that important for for you talking about this? You know, changing up you know the way that you guys are doing things. And building, you know, these networks of of community members. How how have you seen that as an important role? Absolutely. I mean, I can give you two examples of this. Two examples is that we've had two employers in the past year approach us and say, and and a lot of it comes through personal experience, right? A lot of these employers have either either had a family member, someone that they were close to, get into legal problems or struggle with substance abuse themselves. Um, they were able to see the redemptive value of working with that person. Um, so two guys, I won't mention their names. Um, I'm just, you know, I just want to say in general, these are two guys that's, that came to us and said, hey, listen, you know, we understand the challenges that your population faces. We're willing to offer apprenticeships for them. Apprenticeships in construction, you know, in these sort of manufacturing, in the manufacturing, you know, these kind of manufacturing jobs and construction jobs. You know, and that is gold for us. You know, to have an employer that says, hey, listen, I'll, I'll help train guys so long as he's a hard worker, that he's honest, that he has integrity. And those are a lot of the pieces that we work on, right? We work, that's our responsibility to make sure that the guy has a strong foundation of character and discipline where he can be able to take advantage of an opportunity like that. So the first guy that we had, he's a, he's a contractor that um, has a lot of projects in the greater Philadelphia area. We've already had one of our graduates start to work with him, and it's been an unbelievable experience to see um, our resident get so many opportunities through this individual. The other person was a guy that owns a tow, a tow trucking company, and he has seen, you know, firsthand, he's seen a lot of his tow truck drivers succumb you know, to the perils of drug abuse and addiction and, and the sort of the lifestyle that goes along with that. And so he was very excited when we, when we reached out to him see that you know we might actually have a number of guys that are interested in becoming and learning how to be tow truck drivers we've already had one of our residents work with his company with a lot of success and um in terms of networking you know that is that's gold for us it's gold for us to be an employer because we want to preserve that partnership so we work with the resident to try to set them up for success as much as possible but again, you know, it's not, we're not completely throwing out the remedial stuff. We're trying to sort of take the best of that. We still offer GED program for our guys because we know that getting a GED does open up a lot of doors. Um, but again, the way that we're doing things, I think the right way now is that we're not starting with the remedial education. We're starting with the man experience and saying, let's tell us about your life. Tell us what you've done. Tell us how you've survived. Tell us how you've, how you've d- developed resilience. About the training that you received, and then we use that, affirm it, and then we say, okay, let's let's talk about what you want to do for work and a career based upon what you've experienced, and let's see if we can find a good fit for you and, and set you up based upon that. It does occur to us that he could benefit from some remedial stuff? Then then it'll just become a part of his treatment plan. You're no longer putting a guy just you know as soon as he walks in the door to have him starting to do math and reading comprehension. And we are doing those assessments because we want to, we want to know where the guy's at and, um, and where's, where his weaknesses are. But now, first and foremost, we validate the man's lived life and lived experience. 
I don't think that a lot of school systems do that. Yeah, I wanna I wanna stop for a moment and, and talk about that uh, just a little bit more. Um, so so you've had this sort of change, this this reversal of of how that you were approaching uh, these men, you know, without using like names or anything like that, or any, you know, being um, you know, too specific, uh, you know, I think it, I think it would be really helpful to, to sort of hear some, some concrete examples or, or stories of hope, like, like this person, um, you know, was able to move forward as a result of, you know, being validated first and, and given this apprenticeship and, and doing these sorts of things would be, it'd be sort of interesting to, to hear you tell, um, a bit more insight into that. Yeah, so I can talk uh, in a little bit more detail about the individual that pursued the tow truck driving opportunity. This guy came to us. Um, he had relapsed several times, and he had to rethink his career several times because of a lot of his criminal backgrounds. Unfortunately, his criminal background created a lot of barriers for him. And um, those barriers actually a, a pretty big stumbling block because he wanted to be a, a tractor-trailer driver. That was his, was his career choice. Unfortunately, because of his criminal backgrounds, was not able to pursue that immediately. So he had to get creative and say, well, how do I continue to have that be a dream and a hope of mine to be a tractor trailer driver? You know, what's, what's a step in that direction? And so we were able to sit down with that individual and say, well, listen, let's explore, our, let's explore all your options in terms of things that you can do now within our program, possible networking partnerships to get you opportunities that could get you there eventually. And so we were able to take his dream and get it down on paper. We were able to help him with a lot of um, character pieces. You know, you know, we, we do, we are a 12-step program. So we talk a lot about character defects. And often it's those character defects that sabotage men in, in order to keep a job and maintain a job. We were able to work with this individual, to reach out with him in partnership with him to this tow truck company. And that's actually how the partnership happened, is that, we went to the tow truck company, you know, because our um, our client had reached out. We wanted him to be transparent and honest with the company to let him know that he was a part of a, a homeless shelter, a recovery program. Because it's better if we get if our clients get out in front of that than for the employer to find. We do encourage that. Of course, it's up to the client, but we do encourage them to do that, especially if it's something that involves driving and heavy machinery and those types of things. So in this instance, we did disclose. He did disclose, and the the company was elated and was excited. He had the courage to be transparent and honest um, that there was potentially other clients from my my organization that could benefit from this opportunity. I had a really powerful conversation with that employer. He understood that the client's ultimate goal was to be a tractor trailer driver. And he felt like, well, hey, I can help him. You know, th this can be a step in that direction. And so it was an instance where we were able to work outside of um, right, because he wasn't eligible at the time just to go to state and get his you know truck driving license. You know that wasn't an option for him. We were able through networking and through our program of putting his life experience and career aspirations first. We were able to find a partnership with an employer, and as of today, he's still working for that tow trucking company. And as far as I know, his his heart is still set on using that as a stepping stone to become a tractor trailer driver. That's great, Raj. Thanks for uh, for sharing that story and. I mean, another thing that jumps out to me from that story is the personalization of that experience. Like you didn't just throw him in this rigid structure program. Okay, like go do this, but you found a passion that would engage him and um, 
and, and get him going, you know, and, and get him motivated. You found a support network and, and that's just great, you know. Um, and it, yeah. So, so thanks for doing that. Um, and it, still on the sort of positive uh, that, that you've sort of taken us with, without much prompting, um, you know, let's, let's sort of go, let's dream big, right? So let's dream for a moment. What, what would the ideal educational system look like uh, for the men that, that you serve? Maybe some of these things you already do. Um, maybe some of these things uh, you want to be able to do. That's a really great question. I think that the biggest questions that we get is success, you know, and that's typical across the board of a lot of drug and alcohol programs. You know, people want to know, well, what's your success rate? There actually is no more agreement in the addiction field as to what success means. Because guess what? You can be sober and still be living a really miserable life. Be sober and still be really unhealthy. I worked with my organization and I said, we need, we just need to come up with a different criteria for success that actually is reflective of the entire person's life. Because we still do consider sobriety to be a big deal. Guys come to our program to get clean and sober. I don't want to minimize that. That is unbelievable liberation for our men. What we had seen time and time again is a lot of guys get clean and sober and then um, still maintain kind of a low quality of life. I really wanted us to change that. I think that is where I would start, you know, when you talk about an education system and this is where we're turns out that the World Health Organization, I think it was in the, in the 90s, had developed what they called um, the Quality of Life Assessment. And it, it's a questionnaire of 100, 100 questions that cover what they consider to be the, the, the fundamental six dimensions of every person's life. They developed these categories by going all over the world and saying, well, how, how would you measure a person's quality of life? And the first one is um, bodily health. You know, they, they measure things like pain level, um, body image, those types of things. You know, how is a person, you know, energy levels, how is a person doing in terms of their physical health? They measure psychological health, how is a person doing in terms of um, psychological well-being? They look at social relationships, how is this person um, doing with, um, you know, relationships in general, personal relationships? Um, they talk about mobility and transportation is this person able to get around um they talk about level of independence you know how how able is this person to live independently and they talk about um the person's environment in terms of where they live in terms of their access to resources also talk about um spirituality when i discovered this tool i was like this is this is where what we need to do is if my agency should say anything to a person has a question about success that we absolutely should be able to say that we have measurable results. We absolutely are professionals in, in increasing a person's quality of life. And I think that that tool is so powerful and, and the school system can learn a lot from that sort of thing. You're not just reducing a person to a letter grade. You're not just reducing a person to how many days sober and clean they have. And you know what? Let's look at your entire life and validate where you've struggled, where you've experienced success, how you're currently doing now. Because once we have that information, we take that quality of life assessment and we distill it into like, well, okay, I might look at a client's you know results and say, wow, it looks like you're doing great physically. It looks like you have great energy levels. It looks like you're getting great sleep. Or it looks like you have really successful, meaningful relationships. The idea is to see and hear the client based upon their own reporting, as opposed to imposing a criteria upon them. It doesn't like to match their real life, their lived experience. Once we're able to sit down and say, hey, listen, does this really reflect who you are? This is after they've done the quality of life assessment and answered the 100 questions. And then that person so many times will say, yes, you know, 
you know, after we've gone back and forth, you'll say, yes, this does capture where I'm at and how I'm doing in life right now. From that, we can come up with a plan. It absolutely does include education. We can come up with a plan and say, well, let's, let's think about, let's work, come up with a plan together how we can increase the health of your social relationships or how we can increase your level of independence, whatever it might be. And that strikes me as, oh, that's what I wanted when I was in school. And I think that's what the men they they were in school. They wanted their teachers and their professors to and their and their educators to see their entire life, not just their behavior in a classroom or how they perform on some test. I think that my agency is now saying, okay, we can take this quality life assessment, educational assessments, and have an entire picture of this person, and then talk about success, and then talk about success in regards to what does it mean for this person based on their own reporting. What does it look like for them to increase their quality of life? That that's where we can put our time and our energy. What we were doing before um, was great for the purpose it served. But again, I think I still think that we were reducing the men to something that was being imposed upon them, as opposed to starting with their own experience and then coming up with an actual assessment that considers their entire life. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And it, uh, and exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it deals with their entire life, the complexities. Um, and it's probably not an easy process, right, to, to go through that. Um, it, it's probably time consuming and a lot of conversations. Um, it's, I, I think it's more time consuming in the sense that it's more comprehensive and it's more complex. Yeah. I'll give you a concrete example. Let's say, for instance, that this individual is just performing terribly in a remedial education program, and you don't have a lot of insight into what's going on with him. Well, I remember you know, this happening when I was a kid. You know, there was a time in my life where, you know, my family was going through some stuff and I was really going through some stuff at home that none of my teachers knew about. It was absolutely impacting my my performance in school. But my teachers would have never known that. And I think that what this does is, well, wait a minute. On the quality of life assessment, this guy says he's getting two hours of sleep a night. He has chronic pain. Well, that's probably impacting more so than his you know, educational level, that's probably impacting how he's doing. So then we can put our energies into addressing those things so we can position him to actually do well. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So it is more time consuming, but it's more time consuming in a good way because it gets you a better picture of, of these men that you serve. Right, well, we're not putting our energy upon our own agenda, but we're partnering mm -hmm. with the client to say, hey, where should we put our energy right now? It looks like we need to put our energy into helping you get a good night's sleep. Yeah. Because if you're not getting a good night's sleep, that absolutely is going to impact cognitive ability, um, energy levels, food stabilization, all those things. Are, you know, sleep, sleep. You know, helps us maintain homeostasis. You know, so if this guy, mm -hmm. this guy's a train wreck, right? Yeah. He's falling asleep. He's feeling disgruntled. He's feeling frustrated. And you know, I joke around with my executive director sometimes. I'm like, I, sometimes I think that we just need to start a sleep clinic. <laughs> You know, so many of our guys struggle with sleep, mm. you know, and that could be because of long-term drug use or, you know, maybe having a med adjustment with their, you know, whatever meds they're on. Um, it could be sleep apnea. It could be a number of things that our guys face. But, th but that's a really good, that's a really good place to put your energy mm. because it's a prerequisite, right? You know, healthy sleep and, uh, and these other things are prerequisites for for high performance. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming uh, to the end here, um, you know, of, of our conversation and, you know, just want to take a moment with a reflection to sort of connect some of the dots here. So um, how are some of the things that, that you've shared you know, in this conversation tonight able to impact or help us rethink education? So, so you're obviously in a different 
you know, in a different space, but I think your experiences are, are obviously valuable and, and obviously very insightful. So I just want to take a, a couple moments for us to reflect on that, contemplate that. There's a lot of things that, that you've shared tonight that have, that have sort of helped me rethink, uh, you know, education. I could, I could name, you know, a list. I could just start listing them out. But, but to pick one, um, you know, th just a moment ago, you said, you know, we need a different criteria for success. And, and that's true for the men you serve. And I think that's, that's true for the education system as well. You know, the, the current industrialized model of education has failed to meet too many people, right? It's failed to meet people that didn't fit in the, into that criteria. You know, those who needed more hands-on learning, you know, maybe they're too hyperactive or, or maybe something else. But, but instead of engaging them and, and thinking about what, you know, different criteria for success, these kids are just discarded, sent to the principal's office. And, and like you've spoke about earlier, they're aid out, they're pushed through, they're, they're sent along and, 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 and sort of what happens, you know, and, and this sort of connects, you know, this idea along with, with other stuff you, you've shared, you know, it sort of connects with some of my passions within education about student choice, you know, student agency, like, like that, um, you know, gentleman you talked about with the tow truck, you know, he was given agency, he was given choice, he was given a voice. Um, and, and I think we can learn um, from a lot of the, the work that, that you're doing. So, so thank you, you know, for doing that. And thank you for sharing it in a way that I, I think we'll be able to connect uh, to people in a different way. I mean, a mentor of mine told me, you know, who had spent many years working in areas of poverty. He said, you know, working with people in poverty, you have to be creative because you don't have the resources available to you and you don't have the system, you know, available to you. So you got to get creative. And I would say that when I think about K through 12, you know, that's such a formative time for a child's life where there is just a, bur a lot of times a burst of imagination and creativity that it could start there. And you know, I just know that so many of these kids are struggling with things at home that most of us will never know, know about. Developing tools that can encourage, empower their creativity and imagination that also captures of who they are outside of school mm. those things are going to impact how they do what how they do in school two things i think empowering um creativity and imagination and creating avenues for kids to be seen and heard completely comprehensively so that when i was in in grade school that's what i wanted more than anything i wanted my teachers to see me and to hear me and to hear my voice yeah. and for them to encourage my creativity and imagination come at things may, maybe differently than the curriculum allows me to. And to not ultimately be compared to kids where the system seems to work, where kids, it, often you're compared to the kids that are thriving in the system, right? Mm -hmm. That ends up sort of being um, my reference point. And I would say, no, my own life should be my reference point. That's why I love the quality of life assessment. My own success on my own terms should be um, my reference point. My, and my teacher should help me achieve success based on how I define it and how the system defines it. Great. Yeah, the last uh, the last section is, is just a time where we plug uh, something. It could be a, a website, a book, a tool, an uh, organization, um, you know, yourself, you know, whatever your heart desires. But uh, I'm going to plug um, Iowa Big, uh, iowabig.org tonight because I think it applies heavily to some of the things we're talking about. So Iowa Big is a new way to think about education. And what they do is they uh, 
they tailor the education to the students' needs. Some of the students need only come to school for a little bit in the morning, and then they're doing hands-on learning in the community, and it looks different um, for all of the students, and it's and it's uh, and it, it's making a big impact. So I'm gonna I'm gonna plug that. What about you, Raj? Two things that I'll plug. There's an organization called Trellis for Tomorrow. I worked for this organization. It was called something else at the time. It was called the Food for Thought Program. Um, I love these guys. I love the work that they do. They basically work with at-risk youth and adjudicated youth and kids. Um, they offer essentially a workforce development program doing gardening and farming. They teach the kids about finances. They teach the kids um, just creative ways to and new ways to approach education that encompasses their entire life. Um, I served the, as the assistant director for that organization years and years ago. It's really cool to see them continue to do that work in Philadelphia and other places. Um, that is one organization that really captures a lot of the things that I've talked about tonight. I love it. I would also, a book by an Austrian philosopher that was a huge education reformer, or a lot of his books influenced a lot of education reform in parts of the world, is Ivan Illich. Ivan Illich wrote a book called The Tools for Conviviality, um, the tools for essentially doing life together and living together. That book has been such an inspiration and source of life for me. Has really challenged me to think about offering relation tools for doing life, and and I would love to see that happen, you know, at the the elementary school level. So those are my two plugs. Great, thank you, Raj. Thank you for joining me tonight. Appreciate your time um, and your insight. To those of you who are listening, thank you for tuning in to this knowledge drop episode. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get our podcast out to more people. Until next time, keep rethinking EDU. Thanks.